Wow, it's been great to be here. I'm gonna, you know, this has been such a wonderful service. I've gotten four of these now. This is my fourth service. I'm gonna be sad when these services are over because it's been great. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in Texas, uh, Thanksgiving was my favorite holiday. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I love the presence of Christmas, but as far as the day itself, I love Thanksgiving more than any other holiday. It was the Hoover holiday. My grandmother, I talked about her a couple of weeks ago. She had nine kids, and she was very smart. And she said to all the nine kids, hey, on Christmas, go to your spouse's family. So that worked. And, and what she got out of that was the Thanksgiving holiday with everybody coming back to South Texas. And it was just a great day, a, mag- a magical kind of day. First of all, it was huge. My dad was the oldest of nine. Austin's grandmother, my Aunt Kay, who's here today, she was one of the younger siblings. But there were nine of them in the family. So with, with their uh, spouses, uh, that was a pretty good-sized crowd. And then if I've counted right, I think there are 28 in my generation and they were always friends. So I, I did the math this week, and I realized that we never had less than 50 in that farmhouse in South Texas for Thanksgiving. But it was such a cool place to be that a lot of the people bought, brought friends, and I'm guessing it was really closer to 100 who were there for Thanksgiving. It would all start on a Wednesday night. We lived in Fort Worth. My dad's church that he pastored would have services, midweek services on Tuesday. But on Wednesday, we would all go to South Texas, and dad would lead a service in my Uncle James's church. And it was uh, all Hoover's and, Hoover's and musicals, so there would always be a time of music. And then after the music was over, my dad would just open it up to anyone on the floor who wanted to express gratitude. And even as a kid, I can remember how wonderful it was just to hear my grandmother stand up as sort of the grand dame, the matriarch of the family. She would stand up and talk about God's goodness in, in her life, in the life of our family. My grandfather, who was not a believer till he was in his middle years, and he would stand up and talk about God's grace in his life, but he always had a long testimony. My grandfather wasn't saved until I think he was in his 40s. And he, and of course, I, the only grandfather I knew was later in life when he was a committed believer. But he always said, if I'd been saved earlier, he said, I always thought I could be a preacher. And on that night, that Thanksgiving service, my grandfather would kind of wax eloquent about the things that God had done in his life. And then my aunts and my uncles and cousins and great aunts and great uncles would just stand up and talk about God's goodness. And even though I probably wasn't the most spiritual kid in the world, There's something about a climate of gratitude that's attractional, but that wouldn't be the end of it because we were staying with my grandparents, and so at the end of the service, we'd go to my grandparents' house, and Grandma would have some snacks, and then she would sort of hold court and ask each of us after the service what we were thankful for. Nobody in my life has ever called me Markham except my grandmother, but I could still hear her voice as she would say, Markham, tell us what you're thankful for. I still hear that today. I'm 62. And that was in my childhood and teen years. But I still hear her saying, Markham, what are you thankful for? And then Thanksgiving Day would come. And all of my aunts would come to the kitchen. And the, the, the aromas that would come out of the kitchen were magical. And then we would have this feast, this huge feast. And then, as I said a moment ago, Hoover's are all musical. So we would go to the hallway of this farm home. It was, it was a traditional farm home, as you would imagine it in South Texas, and the huge, tall ceiling. And the only thing in the hallway was an upright piano. And in the old days, when I was a kid, my uncle Eugene would play the piano, and the family would sing. There would probably be 50 people gathered in a hallway just singing. My uncle Eugene's in heaven, and he's still the greatest musician I ever heard in my life. And I miss him. I'm looking forward to being in heaven to hear him play again. And then in time, it was my cousin Anita, who's here in Wichita now, in New Spring, Austin's mom. 
when Anita's my younger cousin, although she's really more like a younger sister, I remember in the early days, Anita was just kind of like banging on the piano. In the early days, you would hear people say, get Anita off the piano. But then she got to be really, really good. And I know some of you, some of you ladies went to hear a comedy concert. And as great a comedian as she is, she's an even better musician. And it wasn't long before they were saying, get Anita in here, you know. And uh, just... It was just wonderful. I mean, to, and, and even to this day, when we get together, I see my Aunt Kay out here. We still sing. That's what we do. When my dad passed away five years ago, we had the service here and then the service in South Texas, and we went out to Hoover's Valley Cemetery, and it was just the most natural thing in the world for all of us to just stand around in the graveyard and sing songs of praise. And then after we sang, uh, and forgive us for this. Yes, I understand it's, we were from Texas. We would watch the Cowboys play football. At least we watched the first half of the game. And then, and then all of us would go out to the pasture to play a game of football. It was sort of like the annual Hoover football game out in the pasture. And we'd miss the third quarter and miss a lot of the fourth quarter. But the game would end just in time for us to get in and see the Cowboys do what they do, which is lose. And <laughs> it was just great. And for all of you who are young and your kids are, you know, or your young adults and and you have the old people in your life tell you, hey, you better appreciate this. You won't have it for always. I think about that because I don't know what I would give. I'd be afraid to know how big a check I would write if I could go back and relive just one of those Thanksgiving experiences. And this week, a lot of us who are left in the family will get together at my house, and I can't wait for that day. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. When I was a teenager, I had a dream one night. We were getting close to Thanksgiving. It was almost this time of year. But I had a dream that I missed Thanksgiving. And when I woke up, I woke up in a cold sweat. And I was happy to realize it was just a dream. But when you open the pages of the Bible, you read about nine men who missed Thanksgiving. And I want to share the story with you in a brief message today with that title, The Nine Men Who Missed Thanksgiving. You have four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all contain the stories of Jesus. And there are stories of Jesus that appear in all the Gospels. But this particular story is only in the gospel of Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke has an attention to detail. And he writes, I always think that Luke must have been a gynecologist because there are more stories about women than in any of the gospels. He's just, he, he just sees things others pass by. And I love the story in Luke's gospel about the nine men who missed Thanksgiving. And I want to read it to you now. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a, watch this, loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God, watch this, in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. This is not my topic for today. But it is interesting that racially this group was mixed. These were people who might not have gotten together under other circumstances. And yet because they were in trouble, they didn't notice the racial distinctions anymore. We live in a day where racism is a worse disease than leprosy. And I think maybe if we remembered more how important it is to be part of the human race, maybe we would treat each other differently. It is strange about when we get humble in life that a lot of those things that we have bandwidth 
to be or to consider important when things are going well. It's amazing how we change. But in any event, all of these guys were together, and, and the one guy who returned was a Samaritan. There was a racial deal. We, we won't talk about it today, but there was a racial deal between the Jews and the Samaritans. So it's even, it would have even, even been more surprising in that era that the Samaritan returned. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to give glory to God except for this foreigner? And then he said to him, the one man who returned, rise and go, your faith has made you well. There's no way in the world that you and I can understand this story without understanding the scourge of leprosy. We have leprosy today, but it isn't the disease the Bible talks about. Leprosy was an awful disease. For one thing, it was fatal. And each of these guys would have had their own stories, like Austin sang a few moments ago in the song, Everyone's Got His Story to Tell. Well, they would have had different stories about how they discovered they had leprosy. One might have been at home shaving, and he noticed something on his forehead he hadn't seen before. Somebody, somebody else might have been at work when someone said, hey, what's that on the back of your hand? Or maybe it was a dad playing with a kid, and the three-year-old said, daddy, what's that on your face? But however it got started, it would have been the same disease. At first, there were little skin discoloring nodules that formed underneath the skin, but then those nodules would grow and expand until they broke the skin, and they would become oozing skin ulcers. No makeup could cover it up. And in the extremities, there would be numbness. In the Bible, leprosy is presented as a picture of sin, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Because leprosy and sin are a lot alike. I mean, for one thing, it's a fatal disease. Sin is fatal. There's no cure for leprosy. There's no cure for sin. But I think this thing about numbness is maybe the greatest reason why the Bible compares sin to leprosy. You know, I've read stories about lepers in Bible days who would, in their sleep, allow rats to eat part of their fingers and toes because they wouldn't even know that they were being harmed. I've read stories of people who would stick their hand into boiling water not realizing it was boiling because their hand would be numb. So it wasn't just the, the, it wasn't just the, the problems that the leprosy caused the person as a disease. It was the problems that the people would cause for themselves with leprosy. How many of us have known people who are in self-destructive lifestyles and we've said, hey, this is not going to end well if you continue doing this. But that person said, hey, I'm just fine. But that's because a numbness had set in and that's what happened with leprosy. And although you could contract, it was rare to contract leprosy by casual contact, it still was contagious. And it was such a devastating disease that the Jews required that a leper leave society and move out to live with other lepers. Leprosy would mean not only that you had a fatal disease, not only would you have awful pain, not only would you have a very uncomfortable condition, you no longer could stay with your family, you could no longer keep your job, you would have to go out and live in a colony of outcasts with total strangers, the only thing that would bind your community together was that you had the same disease. And beyond being a horrible, fatal disease, there, it was also a social pariah. Hey, you've read the Bible, many of you, and you know that oftentimes when Jesus would cure someone, the word, the verb for that is healed. But whenever there's a leper involved, it's always said that Jesus cleansed the leper. Because not only were they suffering, they were considered to be unclean. In fact, that's the word that a leper would have to cry out if he got close to anyone else in proper society. The leper would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, to signal oncomers to move away from him or from her. So let's just run a subtotal. 
These 10 guys who have leprosy, they have an incurable disease. They're in pain. They're outcasts. They can't live with their families anymore. They can't prosecute their careers. They've lost everything. Maybe the best way of saying it, they're just marking time until they die. But one day a life-changing event occurs. Jesus comes to town. And they've heard about Jesus. They've heard that he can cure the incurable. They've heard about people who were blind, who were suddenly sighted. They, they've heard about people who couldn't hear, who could hear. They've heard about people who were paralyzed, who got up and ran away. They, they've heard about dead people that came, came back to life. And so these 10 guys go into a huddle that morning and say, Jesus is coming to our town. We can't get close to him because we have leprosy, but maybe he could do something for us. And when Jesus comes and gets close enough to them within earshot, they cry out with a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. That's, that's an interesting prayer. Now, I'm going to talk to a small group of you here today. And most of you just need to just file this away. It won't mean anything to you today. But I want to talk to some of you. You had a really hard time coming today. You had a hard time getting out of bed. You didn't feel like coming. You didn't feel like talking to anybody. You didn't feel like seeing anybody because you're going through a difficult time right now. And like I say, a lot of you won't know what I'm talking about, but there are a handful of you and you'll know by what I say next that I'm talking to you. You have a hard time praying because what you're going through is so painful right now. You have a hard time verbalizing it. And you want to pray because you want to get close to God, but what do you say? And by the way, none of us should feel bad about that because in the book of Romans chapter eight, scripture says no one knows how to pray. The Bible says the spirit of God helps us with unspeakable words and unhearable sounds. So the truth of the matter is none of us knows how to pray, but I'm talking to some of you today and what you're going through is so, I've been there. I know what this is like. What you're going through right now is so painful. You can't even hardly frame a sentence to tell God what you'd like to say to him. Could I loan you this prayer? I mean, we have it in English, Jesus, Master, have pity upon us. But what they cried out really was, Lord, care. I've conducted over a thousand funerals in my 42 years of pastoring. And far too many have been suicides. And they seem to get more prolific around this time of year. And I have a great burden about that. But I will tell you this, I've heard stories of people who have taken their lives. And the reason they took their lives, whether it was true or not true, they had the sense that nobody cared. And maybe you're here today and you're wondering, does anyone really care about me? Well, here's the thing. If you're in that condition, and some of you won't know what that's about today. You'll know about it someday. File this away. But for those of you who are here, you can just pray that prayer. Lord, care. When I was a kid growing up, we used to sing a song in church, or at least I heard the adults sing it. And I don't really remember the lyrics that well, but I just remember the title of the song was, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pain too great deeply for mirth or song? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it anything to him? Does he care? Does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. I remember them singing that song, and I want to say that to you today. I'm not saying that your pain is going to go away, but Jesus cares. And these 10 lepers, they just cried out, Jesus, look at us, care. In a love, verse 14, the Bible says, when he saw them. Have you ever looked away from somebody in trouble? Have you ever just pretended that you didn't see? 
Well, Jesus could have. I mean, for one thing, these guys were a long way off. They couldn't get close to Jesus. They were yelling and screaming and causing a, a, a ruckus, you know, and beyond that. Jesus could have just said, well, that's ugly. I don't want to look at it. But I love this. It says, when he saw them, which means he looked at them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. Well, it was the law in those days. If a person felt like they were well from leprosy, they had to go appear before a priest, and the priest would codify and recognize that indeed they were cured. Not didn't happen very often. But Jesus said to these 10 lepers, just go show yourself to the priest. And this delicious, beautiful line, as they went, they were healed. Okay. Let's, let's move from the first century. Let's move to the 21st century, you and me. What would you do if it were you? I mean, your life is over. You've had to leave your family. You've, you've lost your job. You've, had, you've lost your friends. You're out living with a bunch of people that the only thing that binds you together is that you have the same disease. You're just waiting until basically your body shuts down. You're waiting for death. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes to town and you cry out, Jesus, would you care about me? And Jesus says, hey, go show yourself the priest. And you turn to walk away and you look at your skin and your skin is like a baby skin. What do you do at that moment? Be, let's be, be real about it. I mean, I think some of us would have said, okay, he said, go get checked out with a priest. I'm going to go get checked out with a priest. And then I'm going to go home and see my husband and my kids. Or I'm going to go home and see my wife and my kids. Or go out and be with my friends. Or I'm going to check on getting my job back. Or I'm going to throw a party tonight. I'm going to get on my iPhone. I'm going to text all my friends. And we're going to party tonight. Hey, there are all kinds of things that we would do specifically. But in the 21st century, here's how we say. We say, I'm going to get on with my life. Well, nine of them did. I mean, nine of them got on with their lives. But the Bible says one of them made a U-turn. And we read about him in Luke 17, 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Jesus asked, were, not all, were there not 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? And he said, was no one else found to give glory to God? Now, we'll talk about this guy who returned in a moment. But I think we need to talk about Jesus first. You and I live in an age of political correctness. And in this age of political correctness, there is a language that we use. And part of that language is we don't say anything that we feel might make someone else uncomfortable. So let's just put a 21st century political correctness language on Jesus for a moment. Because this is how people would hear Jesus talk in the 21st century. One guy comes back to thank him, and nine guys don't come back. So what does Jesus say? I understand. I get it. I mean, they had a horrible disease. They missed their families. They missed their jobs. They need to get on with their lives. I understand why they didn't come back. They need to move on with their lives. Jesus didn't say that. I say that today because we can put ourselves in that convenient position of saying, yes, God has done a lot of good things for me, but I have to get on with my life. I have things to do. Surely God understands. That's the problem. God understands. Jesus said, didn't, didn't I help 10? Where are the other nine? And then this haunts me. Jesus said they can't be found, which means God was looking for them. They, they can't be found. I don't want to say much about this because you're here today. But you know, all over the city, all over this region, there are a lot of people that God has done many good things for. God has given many gifts, but they can't be found in worship today. We've been talking about Operation Generosity, or Project Generosity, where we have the opportunity to bless people who are in trouble. But these are people who've been blessed financially, but when it comes time to give, they can't be found. It's Jesus' terminology, not mine. 
So I just find it significant. Jesus didn't say, hey, I get it. I understand. They knew to move on with their lives. Jesus was saying, I expected them to be grateful, and they're not. I'm not just preaching to you today. I'm preaching to myself. But how many of us have been blessed of God, and we've just moved on with our lives? Does it really matter very much? I mean, how important can gratitude be? I mean, doesn't God get concerned about stuff like sleeping around and using drugs and expressing rage and hurting people? Sure, he cares greatly about those things, but we might be interested to know just how he feels about ingratitude. I'll give you an example. In the book of Deuteronomy, which is a really cool book because this is the young generation of Israelites who are going to go into Canaan. And God had said to the people of Israel, I'm going to take you out of Egypt where you're slaves. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be a turnkey job, and you're going to live in houses you didn't build, and you're going to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. So God is saying, hey, I'm going to take you to this marvelous situation. Now, God is speaking in Deuteronomy chapter 8 to the generation who is about to go into Canaan. Read with me. And I'll just tell you, if if you're a God follower, if you ever listen to a minister, not that I'm important. I don't think I would let anything take my attention away from this for the next few minutes. Listen. God said, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing with streams and pools of water. It's a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now, here's a strange statement. But that is the time to be careful. What's he saying? When everything's going well, that's the time to be careful. And then look at this next word, beware. Hey, I know what that word means. Beware means you have a legitimate reason to be afraid. If I go down to the ocean, there's a sign that says beware of currents, rip currents. I know what it means. If if I go to somebody's house, there's a sign that says beware of dog, and I see a pit bull looking out the window. I know I have a legitimate reason to be afraid. Beware always means that. So God is saying to these people, beware that in your plenty you don't forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands. He said, for when you become full and prosperous, you have fine homes to live in. When your flocks and herds have become very large and you got more money, God said, don't be proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery. And he goes on to have this long list of things that he protected them from. Poisonous snakes, scorpions. He said he gave water when they were thirsty, fed them with manna when they were hungry. He did all this, verse 17, so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful. I want you to just work with me for a minute. Don't you find it interesting when God told these people to be scared? Because these people have been through some of the most frightening things in the history of the world. For one thing, they've been slaves in Egypt. But God didn't say, hey, be careful that you don't wind up a slave. That's dicey business. I mean, he didn't say to them, hey, that Pharaoh, man, he's a bad dude, and he's got a big army, so you need to be careful. You need to be aware of Pharaoh's army. He didn't say that. Red Sea, hey, I don't like drowning. God could have said beware of the Red Sea, but he didn't. And then they got into the wilderness, and they didn't have water. Three and a half million people with no water. That's scary, but God didn't say be scared of running out of water. They would get hungry. He didn't tell them to beware of starving to death. They... All kinds of things. They would face giants, but he didn't say beware of the giants. They would get over into Canaan. There'd be big, tall walls like there were outside of Jericho. God didn't say, hey, you need to be worried about big walls. No. He said the only time that they needed to be scared was when they were living in blessing, and they needed to be scared of forgetting God. Where's Where's the calculus in that? It's real simple. God was saying to them, you don't need to worry about being a slave. I can get you out. 
You don't need to worry about Pharaoh's army. You don't need to worry about the Red Sea. I can put them together. You don't need to worry about the plagues. I can take care of that. I can handle that. You don't need to worry about running out of water. I can have Moses speak to the rock and there'll be water. You don't have to worry about running out of food. I'll just send you angels' provisions down from heaven. You don't have to worry about... You don't have to worry about giants. I can take care of the giants. You don't have to worry about the walls. I can handle the walls. God was saying, look, don't worry about the stuff that worries you. God is saying, I can handle all that stuff. God said, there's only one thing I can't handle. He said, I can't handle it if you forget me. Do we hear that today? Because so many of us are stressed about things that are not big things to God. God is saying, I can handle the stuff that you're worried about, but God is saying, I can't handle it if you forget me. Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, beware that in your plenty that you don't forget the Lord. Well, that's what happened with the nine men who forgot Thanksgiving or who missed Thanksgiving. They forgot God. And in this brief sermon today, I need to ask the question, could that be you? Could it be me? Could we have forgotten God's goodness in our lives? Two quick thoughts about the nine men who missed Thanksgiving and will be through. Here's the first thing. They forgot how much trouble they were in. When you and I forget God in our lives, oftentimes there was a season and a time when we were very concerned and we prayed very much about the problem, but then things got better and we forgot the trouble we had been in. These nine men who went on to get on with their lives, they quickly forgot what it was like to have leprosy. I see this in Luke chapter 17, where all 10 of them stood at a distance and they called out with a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. But look in verse 15, the one who returned when he came back, he came back praising God in a loud voice. When he came back, his volume was still turned up. The others had all gone to mute. Some of us are really good about that volume being turned up when we're in trouble. But then the worship disappears when our problem disappears. I remember a story. This happened so many years ago. It probably happened nearly 30 years ago at the old location. This is back when Boeing was still here. And there was an executive with Boeing at a high-paying job. And he'd done something a little dishonest. And he thought he was going to lose his job. Now, his wife and kids came to our church, but he never came. But he called the office and said, is there any way I can talk to Pastor Hoover? And my secretary said, okay, I think I can get you in. He came into my office, and I still see it like yesterday. He told me the story, told me the thing that he did that was wrong. And, I mean, he was confessing to things. I mean, he confessed to everything up to the Kennedy assassination. And, and he, was, he, he said, would you pray with me? And I still remember we got down on our knees in front of my couch in my office, and he prayed this prayer. I mean, he prayed with more fervency than Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel. Oh, God. God, I'm sorry, and look what I've done that's wrong, and Lord, if you'll just forgive me, and I need this job to take care of my wife and my family, and oh God, if you'll just forgive me and give me my job back, I'll do all these things for y'all, I won't miss church ever again, I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm going to do your will in my life, I mean, it is a beautiful prayer. The next morning, he went to work, got his job back, and I never saw him again. But I'm not making fun of him. Because even as I preach this message, I have to ask about how true that is in my life. Many of you have heard me tell about eight years ago when I got sick physically and just exhausted emotionally and I thought I was dying. Happened right about this time of year. And I can't even tell you the hundreds of times I prayed one prayer over and over again. I didn't think I was going to be able to come back. 
thought I was dying. I thought that for one reason I couldn't come back. But secondly, I wasn't sure if I could ever come back and preach again. And I prayed all morning. I'd pray in the afternoon. I'd pray at night. I'd wake up three or four in the morning and I prayed the same prayer over and over. And here's what I would ask God. I would say, God, I'm not asking you to give me a long life. Would you just give me another season? Just give me another season. I prayed that hundreds of times, and I prayed it with fervency, and God answered my prayer. And now I'm eight years into what's been the greatest season of my life, but I'm wondering today, do I still thank God with the same kind of fervency that I would cry beside my bed bed and beg God to give me another season? I'm asking the question, is our volume still turned up? And oftentimes it's not turned up because we just forgot how much trouble, we forgot what the trouble felt like. There was a time when you prayed about your marriage or you prayed about your kids or you were broke. You prayed, or you were sick and you were praying and asking God. And, and here's the thing, there's nothing wrong with getting on with your life. There's just something wrong with forgetting the Lord. In Psalm chapter 40, the 40th Psalm has this great verse. It says, he lifted me out of the ditch. How many of us can say that? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but he lifted me out of the ditch. And then look at this next line. He pulled me from deep mud. How many of you have been in deep mud? So that's the first reason the nine men missed Thanksgiving. They forgot how much trouble they had been in. And number two, and I'll close with this. The nine men who missed Thanksgiving devalued the grace that they had been given. How much does God's goodness mean in your life? See, I think this loud voice thing, I can't get away from that loud voice thing. All 10 of them cried with a loud voice when they were in trouble. One guy came back and his volume was still turned up. Here's the thing about worship. Worship has everything to do with just how valuable God is in your life. Let me illustrate. We're in football season. How about them chiefs? I'm telling you, they've been something to watch this year. And you know how it is when they score touchdowns. I mean, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. I can remember many years ago when the Dallas Cowboys scored touchdowns. I mean, they scored one the other day, and I thought it's not so big for me, but my kids and grandkids have never seen it, you know? <laughs> but those of you Chief fans or whatever your team is, you know what it's like. I mean, you know, this is a winning touchdown. It's like, can you believe that Patrick Mahomes? I mean, you're like texting or you're calling somebody. and You say, are you kidding me? Did you see that play? You know how we are. Again, I'm an old guy, and you guys are really young, most of you. You, you probably don't, old people love to tell you about stuff that happened when they were young, you know. That's just what we do. Somebody said the great thing about grandkids, they don't show you pictures of the grand, grandparents. So, uh. back, back when we only had three channels, you know, back in the 70s or so, there was only one college football game on a week. And you just had to take whatever they served up. I mean, it would usually be a big game. It's Texas OU, Michigan OU, uh, Ohio State, or uh, Notre Dame, you'll see. So it was a big game, but there's only one. Today, man, there, there are college football games everywhere, right? And they're not just on Saturday. They're all week long. I mean, they have college football games on Tuesday night. It's games nobody's interested in. They're on ESPN 6 channel or something, you know. Ball State versus Western Michigan. I watch it because I love football, but I don't care anything about Ball State or Western. I don't even know where Ball State is. I'm assuming Western Michigan somewhere in Michigan. But I'm watching the game. You know, I got one eye on it. I'm doing something else. And man, there can be this huge play and somebody could win the game for Ball State. And it's like, I don't even, I'm like, I don't care anything about Ball State. 
What do you like in worship? If God's grace is in your life, man, it's like, Chiefs, see that? You, you, you know how much trouble I used to be in and God has been good to me and he's blessed me and I have a good job and, 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 and my life's not perfect, but God is in my life. And when you get to worship, the volume is turned up. But for a lot of us, when we come in to worship God, it's just Ball State and Western Michigan because we really don't care very much. We need to get on with our lives. strange ending to this story. When the one leper comes back to thank Jesus, Jesus said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. I've communicated scripture, I've preached since I was 16 years of age. For me, one of the things that helps me, people a lot of times ask me, how do you come up with these sermons? Well, a lot of times what happens is I read the Bible and I ask questions because I read stuff and I realize, wait a minute, I don't want just the surface thing here. There's something else going on here and I need to know what it is. And I read this story. Hey, you saw it too, didn't you? You, you caught the same question. Because it's like, why did Jesus say, hey, okay, get up and go home now because your faith has made you well? You caught the question. You're like, wait a minute, didn't he get well before he came back? No, no, no. He just got cured of leprosy. This time he got made well. The other nine, they just got over their leprosy. This guy, Jesus touched his mind and his heart and his life. The word there is whole, complete. Jesus like your, your faith expressed in gratitude, has healed you. This and I'm finished. Yesterday, Stephen told me a story. I want to share it with you. In 1973, there was a new Presbyterian denomination forming, Presbyterian Church in America. I'm not Presbyterian, but this particular organization is really a great organization. It was based on the Bible being the word of God. And, but in 1973, when this denomination started, they didn't have any money. And they didn't have any missionaries, of course. They had just gotten started. And someone gave $90,000 to the Presbyterian Church in America for two missionaries. And they both were wound up in Acapulco. And they were dead broke because they didn't have money. The denomination didn't have any money. And one of the missionaries' name was David Dye. And... <laughs> You can imagine how discouraging it would be not to have a big support group because the big denomination is just getting started and you don't have any money. And day after day, you think about what you could do if you had resources, but he didn't have resources. And he was tempted time after time to just quit and go home. But outside the city of Acapulco on a hill, someone had positioned a cross. And when he would get really discouraged, he would look up and see that cross on the hill and he would be encouraged but on the worst day of his discouragement, he thought, I'm just going to go up and thank whoever put that cross up there. So he climbed the hill. And when he got to the top of the hill, he discovered that it was part of a resort. And so he went to the guy at the desk and he said, I'd like to talk to the owner. And the guy said, do you have an appointment? He said, no, I don't have an appointment. He said, I just want to talk to the owner. The guy at the desk said, what do you want to say? And he said, I just want to thank him. And so it was just a few minutes later that missionary David Dye got brought back to the office of a German man who put that resort in. And he said, sir, my name is 
David Dye, I'm a missionary here, and I get really discouraged sometimes, and I look up and I see your cross, and I just want you to know that it encourages me, and I just wanted to thank whoever would put a cross up on top of the hill. And as he talked, the owner's eyes began to tear up, and in a moment, he put his face on his desk as he literally shook with sobs. And when he got his composure, the owner said, I put that cross up many years ago. And all I've ever gotten has been grief and criticism. You're the first person to ever thank me for the cross. And then he said, sir, what can I do for you? And he said, well, I, I'm a missionary and we don't have any place to meet. He said, you have a place to meet this Sunday at 10 o'clock. You come up here to the resort, to the hotel. I've got a big room. You can have your church right there. And that's where the first church of that denomination started. In a short time, there were four more. I know it's a stretch, but I almost think I hear a conversation between someone who is thankful in God and someone comes back to God and says, thank you for the cross. And God said, I put it up there a long time ago, but it wasn't an empty cross. It was a cross that was filled with his son, Jesus. And I hear God say, most people just criticize me for it. And then I hear God say, what do you want? What can I do for you? It matters. It matters a lot. It matters more than we can dream. God says he can handle anything in your life, but the one thing he can't handle is being forgotten. And although it's nice to get on with your life, I wonder if we don't have some sisters and brothers here today who would say, I remember how much trouble I was in. And I believe God's grace in my life is very precious. And I'm going to make a U-turn today, and my volume's still turned up. It's not Ball State in Western Michigan. I'm coming back to worship and to be thankful. And I believe to that woman, to that man, God will say, now what is it I can do for you? May God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving.